Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Simon Lisher here. Great to have you back. I have a sensational guest joining me today because we're going to talk about really, really fast cars and technology. So, um, you know, what's not to like here? I'm joined by Chris Andronaco, who's the Manager of Technology at the Toyota Racing Division, or TRD. You may know it better as. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Simon. Thank you. Good to have you here. Now, I think, as I mentioned, you know, everyone likes fast cars and technology together. So, um, I'm guessing... You, know, you kind of have the dream job to some extent, but maybe tell our listeners what TRD does just so we have the right context. Sure. So we're kind of commonly associated with uh, the TRD you might see on the side of a truck or a car um, here in America, right? And I'm sure many other places, the kind of aftermarket parts, if you will. But that's not um, actually what we do. So everybody who works at TRD uh, is either an engineer or supports an engineering function. And our, our responsibility within Toyota as a whole, is, is motorsports uh, within North America. So the kind of more famous or easily recognizable circuit that we support here is NASCAR. Uh, but we do support uh, a number of other of other circuits within North America, but that, that would be the most visible one. And we support them by by offering our teams. So, so we don't actually have any drivers or any teams that uh, are, are directly employed by Toyota. What we do is we offer them engineering services that helps them win races and in turn promotes the Toyota brand. And so one of those engineering services that we offer is software. Fantastic. And it's, it's a really interesting use case because it's High performance, um, you, you can't reschedule races and it's all real time. So that we'll, we'll dive into some of the challenges around that. I'm encouraged to hear that you do do racing where uh, you turn right as well as left. So that's uh, good to know that you've twice, got <laughs> twice a year. Yeah. <laughs> both, both capabilities. Um, and, and I think, you know, many technologists know you know, if, when we watch, you know, NASCAR or Formula One or any other form of motorsport, just how much, you know, you see support teams hunkered over screens and analyzing data in real time and this sort of stuff. Um, I wanted to start maybe at the start, which is, you know, you, you came into to TRD to lead this function. No doubt you had a, you know, completely greenfields environment. You could choose whatever you wanted and you just built it from scratch. <laughs> Isn't that Absolutely. how it went? <laughs> Absolutely not, Simon. No. So it couldn't have been more of the opposite. Uh, when, I, when I came in, we had a kind of your traditional .NET stack monolithic application um, development shop. And it's something that I think many of us walk into in this role. Uh, and, and it was kind of in this age where NASCAR was just starting to offer a reliable internet at the, at the racetrack. So when I, my first day, Simon, this is a true story. I, when I went to the track, the first day at the track, I actually saw someone running a USB stick from the pit wall to a hauler and they called it sneaker net. <laughs> and uh, that, that was the type of, of network that you had to deal with at the time. And, and, it, well, and well, knowing, it, knowing what race teams are like, they would have tried to find the fastest person to run that, you know, 50, 50 yards absolutely. to get there. <laughs> and then, then, then they did a case study on which sneakers worked better. So, <laughs> so we, uh, we, we had to improve that. And, and, and definitely NASCAR did improve that. And so I kind of came in at a time where, where web apps started to become possible. Um, and the, the, the internet support for them was, was, was coming along at the track. So I had to do an evaluation of, of how would we achieve that. I know I wanted to do web apps, but I didn't know quite how we were going to get it done. Uh, and also we had a, we had a development shop that was kind of waterfall and uh, a little stagnant. So, so we, we, we did a complete re- revamp. We went from uh, that, that type of shop to, we are now kind of a full stack JavaScript development shop. And we went from, you know, monolithic local applications to the cloud. And we gave a couple of different cloud options the choice. But ultimately, AWS was uh, unequivocally the winner for us in ease of use and speed of, of development. So uh, we've built our, our development operations around that. 
So let's talk about that development team and, and importantly, I guess, the, the culture and the structure of the team. Because I, I know when I talk to many listeners, they're like, you know, how do other people do this stuff? And you know, everyone's talking about moving to Agile or moving to microservices or continuous integration. However, it's not as much of a technology challenge as it is a, a cultural and structure challenge. So I'd love to hear your story. Well, I think it's always a, uh, maybe stepping out of school here, but I think it might always be a, a cultural challenge more than a technology one. So once we made the choice to, to do agile development, uh, we have the luxury of being in a sport here, right? So I'm, we're not selling anything. Uh, the way that we measure success is by winning at the track. And so therefore we're afforded the opportunity to, to, to do whatever it takes to make that possible. And so when we decided to, to do agile development, we got to kind of do it the way the book is written um, and see if it worked. And, and it definitely does for us. So we had to re-educate and change. Here's a great example. So before, when a project was done here, we would have had what was called a functional requirements document. You would have spent some time coming up with some specs and you would have uh, you really laid out what the application is going to do. So then you would have gotten that approved and you would have started developing on it. And then about two months into development, uh, race team decides that they need to build their car this way instead of that way. And now you need to pivot, but you're well into a project. It's nearly impossible to make that change. And so that's kind of the prescription that, that Agile is supposed to fix, right? So in order to do that, though, you you have to focus a lot less on things like documentation and things that, that management really likes to see. And you kind of have to, to hand the reins over to your developers and trust them. And that, that's not always the easiest thing to do. Uh, but we were able to kind of build that from scratch and, and, and get a development team together that did true full stack development. So I think what's synonymous with, with Agile is full stack, in, at least in my experience. So the person who's picking up the ticket and the person who's delivering that ticket should be the same person, right? End to end, it's the person with the skin in the game, the, the person who knows the code the best, um, also in our environment, writes the tests, uh, acts as a QA person, and uh, d- can sometimes be directly interfacing with the subject matter expert to help get that feature out the door. So we were kind of able to leverage uh, AWS in a way that allowed us to uh, do that via continuous integration and continuous delivery uh, so that when a developer creates a piece of code, the subject matter expert is looking at it on dev before he approves it, and then it moves along the pipeline from there. So you've, you've taken that concept of a pipeline, but because of the, the AWS capability, you can have kind of as many pipelines as you need to service those engineers. But let's talk about you know, the engineer themselves. I mean, uh, many people listening will go, well, that's a unicorn, you know, someone who could do full-stack development and take a ticket from end-to-end, you know, so, so clearly you went to the unicorn store and just bought a few of those and <laughs> that's your team. Um, <laughs> I wish you, you know exactly, is, let me know. Exactly. How did, how did you enable the engineers in your team to, to become that or to, to develop into that over time and how long does that take? So great question. You definitely so, – so we definitely hired what we could, right? So as far as, as, as talent that has touched as many – sides of the stack as possible. But that still leads to certain people being better at certain things. Um, they're just, they were, they, they, maybe they were six out of seven years of experience on just UI work. So they're really good at that. And they tend to gravitate towards that. So we kind of embraced the, the agile methodology and we just, it, it's one team and they handle everything uh, from end to end. And, and that includes planning. So uh, you know, you, you got to take a day out of every two weeks and it, it kind of stinks, but you, you, you take that day and you, you run your retros, you run your planning 
And so over time, as engineers work together and they set up the system from end to end together, or at least knowing what each other is doing, uh, they can develop a, a certain expertise that they wouldn't have had access to uh, otherwise. Because if you're just kind of swimming in your swim lane all the time, you never get exposure to a different side of the system. And you maybe never get an opportunity to become an expert in it. So it's definitely a progression. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to lie to you about that, Simon. But uh, as we've gone on, you know, we're three years into this particular endeavor here. Uh, I, I definitely have team members who who can take a ticket from any part of the stack and work on it and get it done. Uh, now, it wasn't that way out of the box, but it, it was that way uh, as we went along. Sure. And I, and I guess it's one of those great examples. If you don't set the goal of doing it a particular way, you, you're kind of never going to get there. Um, yeah. it's, it's that old saying of you know, the best time to start is three years ago and the second best time is now. So uh, you can't. It's, it's really easy to to knock a process like that and figure out ways not to do it. Um, it, it's a little more nerve wracking to, uh, to, to kind of put your hands in the developers and say, uh, all right, so you're, you're, you're the smartest people, um, I have on my team and, and I'm, I'm going to let you tell me what to do instead of the other way around. For sure. For sure. Now, speaking of agile, one of the key roles on agile teams that I see really in many ways dictating whether, a, an agile adoption is successful or not successful is the role of the product owner. And you've got some interesting product owners because obviously they're more tied into the, the engineering piece and then the, the race team piece and what those race teams are needing. Can you talk to us a bit about how you view the role of the product owner and things you've seen work well? Yeah, so we have a, a bit of a unique and sharp product ownership uh, separation here because so, so if you take a, an application that we build that maybe does chassis simulation work, right? So, so my, none of my engineers are chassis engineers. Uh, most of them are not mechanical engineers and they couldn't write a math model to simulate a break uh, to save their lives, but they, they have access to these folks. So in order for our projects to be successful, we have to collaborate with uh, subject matter experts that, that blend traditional engineering uh, disciplines and ours in technology. And, and we've been able to really do that effectively here by incorporating subject matter experts into kind of the more traditional agile roles, specifically, like you mentioned, the product ownership role. So uh, like on that project that I mentioned, the, 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 the chassis simulation tool, we have an engineer who uh, works day in, day out with the race team, with the race engineers who set the cars up. And so he is intimately aware of what they need and can help guide my engineers to provide the features um, and answer questions along the way. And it turns out if you, if you, in, in our case, when we started providing uh, sort of the, the, the steering wheel, if you will, to, to, to that subject matter expert, in many cases, we found people who were very eager to participate and, and jumped in head first with us. And um, they, they really get a sense of ownership. And then they're a part of the software team at that point and, and vice versa. Then we're a part of the race team. And that's, genuinely how it's supposed to work right absolutely that that really is the key so you mentioned the chassis tuner let's let's maybe dive into some some of the tech on uh on that particular project because it's an interesting problem domain talk us through you know what it does and how you built it sure so at the base level you've you've got these this the so people have been doing this for a while, right? So you've got these mathematical models that make up uh, maybe a shock or a tire or a brake or some component of the car. And, and over time, what they've done is they've melded these together to, to represent an entire vehicle. So you can take a sum of, of, of real parts that have been measured, uh, put them together, assemble a car, um, and, and go do simulations with that car. What we've done with this application 
that, that's new is, is we've taken that and, and said, right, so let's leverage kind of the powers of, of the cloud here and, and make that highly scalable and kind of take it away from the individual user's laptop. So traditionally, this would have been done on a laptop. So you can imagine um, at the track, the same guy who's doing sneaker net is also carrying around the biggest laptop you've ever seen uh, with an extra battery pack so he can run simulations uh, in real time, as close to real time as possible during practice. So we, we've abstracted that and said, hey, let's deliver that to you through the browser and it doesn't need to, it doesn't need to be run on your laptop. And so we did that. Um, kind of a number of different ways, but we can roughly go through the application stack is, is it's, it's a web app that, that we built. Um, the, the front end is going to come into uh, AWS uh, through through an application load balancer and hit a number of APIs. Uh, and then behind that, we're, we're running uh, one of our first buzzwords here, the Docker containers in ECS uh, that, that run our front end and our back end. And we've got uh, CouchDB behind that. And so we'll kind of run down the stack from there. Once, once a job is submitted, so an engineer says, "Hey, I want to I want to take this vehicle. I want to run these ten thousand laps on it." Um, it's gonna, it goes into uh, an EC2 that we're running Redis on uh, through a private adapter, and then we'll run out to uh, uh, a waiting group of, of EC2s and an auto scaling group. And so we spin those up and spin those down based upon uh, demand and a number of, of maybe CloudWatch alarms, for example. And then we push results back to the users uh, via S3. Um, so that, that's kind of the real quick real quick overview. Mm, that's a, a real, it's that classic, you know, scalable on-demand type model where basically you can give the results back to the consumer as fast as they want slash need it because basically you're turning the dial on the compute power, whereas before it was buy a bigger laptop or have more laptops. Absolutely. And, and it's funny as you start doing that well enough and you start giving them results faster than they actually want them. <laughs> so they, <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can throw a lot of squiggly lines at people real quick and they're not quite sure. Uh, what to do with them they're, when they're used to the older model of running maybe uh, 10 simulations in an hour, let's say, and now you're, you're saying, right, I can, I can exponentially increase that for you. Uh, it's, it's pretty powerful. It is. And that's a great example where, you know, IT is actually delivering genuine value to the operation in as much as it's challenging the business model itself or the, the business operational model itself to say, hey, we, you know, the, the constraints you used to have are gone. So now you've become the constraint. How do we work around that? Which is pretty exciting in terms of contributing value back versus just doing documentation and waterfall model stuff. Yeah. So it's funny. One of the things I, I was doing an interview today um, with a potential developer and, and I was explaining to him, he's like, so, so what, what is your favorite thing about working there? Uh, it's applications like these are, are what I explained to folks is the, the ability to have a direct impact on the bottom line uh, for us is winning races. And, and, and that, that, that's a, that's a really sharp uh, knife that cuts both ways, right? So the, the, the pressure of that um, when you get it right is tremendous and, and the pressure of it when you get it wrong is, is also tremendous. But you're, you're absolutely right. We're, we're kind of changing the way that our engineers work with technology. And that is unequivocally the kind of next frontier in our racing circuits because um, you can spend a lot of money trying to gain one horsepower in a car or one pound of downforce in a car. And for that equivalent money, you can you can do something with your data that helps you make a decision faster that uh, you never would have thought of otherwise. This is like one of those one of those tools that just absolutely blows minds. It's great. 
For sure. Now, now speaking of winning races, because let's face it, this is what these teams want to do. They're fiercely competitive and they fiercely want to win. And, you know, to the uninitiated, we sort of watch these races and we put all our focus on the driver, who's clearly doing a good job, an important job. But there's this entire team formulating race strategy and pit stops and where everyone else is on the road and what the conditions are, lots and lots of things. And you've done some work on a really interesting race strategy application. Um, maybe let's talk a bit about that because I think it's a good example of, as you said, sort of that new data coming in to change the decision-making process. Yeah, so so we have a, a one of our, our tools that we offer our race teams um, is, is kind of a real-time, uh, for lack of a better word, I'll call it a race strategy tool. It does it does a lot of different things, Simon, some more traditional, uh, like just reporting things like lap times to, to, to more complicated uh, simulations and kind of predicting out what happens if, if, if we do this or if we do that as close to real time as possible. Um, and then that's another application architecture that I'd be happy to, to lay out for you if you'd like. Yeah, let's go through that because I think it's, a, it's an interesting one where it's so real time, we need to think about it slightly differently. Sure. So uh, on that one, we're, we're leveraging a, a number of different AWS services and it's a slightly different configuration than the, the application we were just discussing. So uh, we, we get a number of Let's start with the data feeds. So the data feeds for that are are disparate. Um, they come in at different speeds and at different frequencies. So they they're also you can lose one and not others. And so you kind of have to say, right, I got all these different data feeds. They all mean something to me, but they come in in all these different ways. And I, uh, what do I do with that? So we scrape them all uh, in EC2s, which that part is rather straightforward. And, and we kind of publish a, a certain list of of items to DynamoDB. But then beyond that, we're we're kind of really concerned about the integrity of, of those data feeds and being able to recover when they go out or if you have an issue with one of them. So we, uh, we, we decided to leverage Kinesis to essentially bring those streams in uh, in a serial manner and, and, and do two things with it right there. So we bring it into Kinesis and we kick off a Lambda that writes uh, FireOS S3 to, to, S3, to an S3 bucket. And, and what we're doing there is we're kind of taking a snapshot of the data as it comes in. Right, so that's our before checkpoint, and then that, that Kinesis stream will also deliver the data to uh, an EC2 node application that we call the Arbiter, and that is where we're doing a bunch of calculations. We're doing inferred statistics, we're doing simulations, we're doing a lot of different things there, and so we we do a do a couple of of, of things with the data once it's in the Arbiter. As as we're going along, we're constantly writing uh, a snapshot to Elasticache in near real time, so that if the if we lose an arbiter, we can recover from Elasticache in, in sort of the order it arrived, right? So you can recover quite quickly from an outage. And then if uh, once the data gets processed by the arbiter, we want to take another snapshot of that so that we can do whatever we want with it. So as it goes out of the arbiter, it hits another Kinesis stream uh, that kicks off a Lambda, writes it back to S3. So now we kind of have a before checkpoint, a during checkpoint, and an after checkpoint. Um, and then after that, the data would, would go on about the... Uh, the application stack and eventually get delivered to the race engineers, both at the track, at the shop, anywhere in real time. So this is where there's kind of a, a global uh, user base for this application. So it would be a mistake to think it's, it's just the folks on, on the ground in pit lane who are using this data. It's actually uh, engineers potentially thousands of kilometres away or in different countries who are also contributing in observations and, and data points that they think are relevant. Yes. So one of the things we wanted to solve um, by moving to the cloud was how do we get the engineer who's at the shop looking at the same data via the same tool set 
at the same time as an engineer who's on pit wall. How do you, how do you link those those two people together? Because um, it's it's quite normal for someone who is uh, on the firing line in the thick of it at the track to feel sort of orphan, like n- nobody understands what they're going through, if you will. Uh, and one way to, to help them in a way that they'll accept is to provide them with the same data that everybody else is looking at in the same format. And so that that's that's a, a very traditional problem you're trying to solve by moving away from monolithic application structure, but it's something that we were able to achieve here. And, and so, yes, you're absolutely correct. Uh, an engineer in California uh, is looking at the same data as an engineer in North Carolina is looking at the same data as an engineer who's at the track in New Hampshire at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's it's really collaboratively. And uh, one other thing, Chris, I'm really interested in how you sort of thought about the challenge of the, the different application categories you have, because clearly you have the ones that are used kind of all the time, you know, when you're doing engine tuning and analysis and simulation. And then there's kind of the, the in-race category, which I would suspect has far lower tolerance for being unavailable or running slowly or not giving the right answer, because as I said earlier, you can't say, hey, stop the race, we've got to make a fix here. Um, yeah. I'm sure you wrestle with this. I'm just interested in your thought process around that. So I, I essentially we uh, we have the luxury, if you will, of the way that we built this application infrastructure, for lack of a better analogy, it's more of a platform as a service that we've custom built, right? That offers our software as a service to the users. And, and one of the things that we wanted to solve was not being married to an individual stack. Right. So, so if I choose SQL and WinForms for this, this really simple and easy to stand up application that doesn't have a bunch of fault tolerance, I'm now married to supporting that uh, for, for a very long time. And what we wanted to do was approach every single engineering problem that we're trying to solve a technology with a fresh perspective and say, right, so for this particular problem, what is the right stack? What is the right choice of technology or services to use uh, to, to solve this, this problem? And, and how do we go about doing that from a fresh perspective, not being beholden to, to the previous application choices we made last year, last month, or three years ago? Um, and so we were, were definitely able to achieve that by the way that we architected our system. And so I, we don't have to put a, a ton of thought into, is this application more important than this application? We're, we're, we're able to leverage uh, things like AWS to provide uh, near you know, universal support to all of our applications if that makes sense. For sure, yeah. It's, it's, it's a f- philosophical change, and it sounds like there's been a lot of philosophical thinking uh, within TRD and technology, which is which is great. Chris, where can people find a little bit more information about what it is that, uh, that TRD technology does? Uh, so... Actually, Simon, we are very secretive. Um, we, we provide, <laughs> we're, we're providing a competitive advantage to our to our race teams, and and, and we we have a very small uh, public footprint. But uh, you can always go to, uh, to Toyota.com, if you will, and can find your way to TRD. But we don't since we don't sell anything within this division. Uh, we don't really have a public facing footprint. I know that we have a probably a Twitter account or something like that. But for my department, we keep uh, pretty close to the vest. Uh, you can uh, definitely check out uh, our, this is my architecture video that we uh, have done with AWS coming up. We did a presentation for AWS last year at reInvent. I think we're doing at least two or three uh, this upcoming reInvent as well. Fantastic. So it sounds like for those folks who are interested to uh, definitely find those uh, those presentations at reInvent and have a bit of a chat with the folks after them as well. Sounds like a, a good strategy, I'd say. 
Absolutely, Simon. I, and I'll, I'll do a small plug here. We're always looking for uh, developers who are passionate about this type of, of full stack development. So um, I'm, I'm happy to provide uh, my, my, my Toyota email address to you at the end of the podcast. Awesome. Well, uh, you know, if uh, listeners want to learn more, they can certainly reach us at awspodcast.amazon.com. Chris, thanks for coming on the show and uh, telling us a bit more about what you guys do. Really, really interesting. Thanks for having me, Simon. And as ever, we do love to get your feedback, awspodcast.amazon.com. And until next time, keep on building.